All right, well, let's grab our Bibles and turn to the book of James chapter 1, if you will. The book of James chapter 1. And let's begin reading in verse 2. James writes, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it shall be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed to and fro by the wind. (coughs) Excuse me. For let that man not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Wow. Okay. Amen, brother. No. Oh my goodness, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen and a burning heat than it withers like the, withers the grass, its flowers fa- falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. As a Christian, we are guaranteed many things in this life. The Bible tells us so. One of those things is the fact that sooner or later we will find ourselves in what the Bible calls a trial. A trial. A difficult time. I like to call them the three T's. Trial, troubles, and tribulations. Whatever they may be. However they may manifest themselves. We are guaranteed that as a Christian, we will go through a trial in and through this life. However, though, how we react to that trial is exactly what James addresses this morning. James instructs us to count it all joy when we fall into various trials. How is that possible? How is it possible to find joy as we go through or weather through the storm of various trials? Well, it all comes down to our perspective, the way we look at it, the way we understand it, and understanding that there is purpose to it. As Christians, we understand that we are operating under a larger scope than those in the world. That God has started a good work in us that He is faithful to complete. He also promises through His Word not to leave us the way He found us, but to sanctify us, bringing us back into the image of Jesus Christ after being born in the fallen state inherited from Adam. He does that, that sanctification, through trials. The trial in the life of the believer is like the tip of the chisel 
forming the rock at the hand of the artist, the sculptor. Trials are a necessity in our lives as Christians. And therefore, when we see it from that perspective, that God is using them and doing something in and through them, and they are purposed, we can be joyful to know that God loves us too much to leave us the way He found us. So James begins. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Not if you will fall into various trials. When you do. It's only a matter of time. As one pastor once said, if you're not going through a trial today, just wait. It's coming. But how we respond to that trial is, again, dependent upon our perspective. To count it all joy, which is a financial term that uh, James uses, Paul uses the same thing, it means we should count it as something that is beneficial to us. And therefore, we can be joyful knowing that in and through the trial, God is keeping His promise to us. Meaning that we know that this is part of the work that God started that, and is part of the work that He will complete within our life. Now, he also uses this word various because they come in uh, obvious various different uh, circumstances in different types of trials. There are many difficulties that we experience in this life for different reasons. There are difficulties that we experience just simply living within a fallen world. There are difficulties that we experience when we uh, disobey God's word and we reap the consequences of that disobedience. And then there are trials that we have not warranted or brought upon ourselves, but God has allowed for the purpose of, of forming us into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, regardless if it is a natural occurrence or a consequence of our action, or if it is something that God has allowed for the purposes of either chastening us or simply helping us to grow, we can be confident of this, that no matter what the origin of the difficulty, that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Even our mistakes. Even what the world may, you know, level against us. God is using it all. In various forms, at various times, we will fall into trials. The word fall there means exactly that. It's an illustrative word. It is to help us to understand that we can be walking along in life and often, you know, you stumble and fall. Every time we go away, my wife and daughter love to hike. They are just hikers, okay? Now, my idea of hiking is a paved path. You know, maybe a Segway, uh, a moped, bicycle, okay? But they decide to pick out the trails that no one has ever walked before. They walk right next to, you know, the, the raging waves of Lake Michigan uh, on cliffs, you know, right next to cliffs, and they're hanging there, and it's, 
You know, it's like, I think they're trying to discover their superpower. That's what I think they're trying to do. But inevitably, you know, you fall, you know. And it's usually me falling on the path first. No, uh, you know, you fall. It comes upon you suddenly. You know, I'll start walking these trails, and of course, it's root infested. And sure enough, if (laughs) dad's down, dad's down, you know. They come upon you suddenly. They overtake you. Jesus explained it this way when he talked about the two building houses, one upon the stone, the other upon the sand. The storms came, and the descriptive language that he used is that they came from every direction, unannounced. And as a result, the individual needed to be prepared. So count it all joy when, not if, you fall into various trials, all different types of trials, and realize that they often will come upon you subtly. God uses trials in our life to bring about spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity. Our Christian life is just like our natural life. We're born again into a state of infancy in our newfound faith, and we are expected to grow into maturity. As one affectionately calls it, adulting as a Christian. But the way God promotes that growth is by allowing us to go through difficult circumstances. Spiritual maturity is absolutely necessary in the church today more than ever. You know, as Greg Laurie said, and I quoted last week, a Christian is like a tea bag. You don't know what it's like until they are in, put in hot water. Warren Worsby wrote, he said, One of the best tests of Christian maturity is tribulation. When God's people go through personal trials, they discover what kind of faith they really possess. Trials not only reveal our faith, they also develop our faith and Christian character. However, though, our initial response isn't to count it all joy. We often gravitate to one of the three E's, as I call them, the three E's. Number one, our first reaction is to try to escape. We try to escape the trial that we find ourselves within. Of course, that would be a natural reaction. Number two, we try to explain the trial. When we face trials, we tend to ask, why is this happening to me? Or number three, the third E is exit. Once a trial is upon us, we want to get beyond it as quickly as possible. But any one of these three reactions, though they may be natural, will not allow for the perfect work that God wants that trial to have in us. And therefore, we find ourselves quickly in another trial so that work may be completed. So when we enter into trials, may I suggest that you take a moment, you take a step back, you seek the heart of God. If it is a natural thing that occurs just simply because we are in, that fallen, in the fallen world, if it is an occurrence that has come about because of the consequences of our sin, then I ask you repent and say, Lord, now work through these consequences and help me not to disobey you again. But if it's God allowing such a trial in our life, then 
I would encourage you to seek Him and to say, Lord, help me to weather this time, knowing that I'm not alone within it, that you are always with me and you'll never leave me nor forsake me. But let this trial have its perfect work within us. We have to understand that God is more concerned about our eternal glory than He is our temporal comfort. Because again, as I have stated, He loves us too much to leave us the way He found us. To allow trials into our lives, allow those growth opportunities. And again, spiritual maturity is certainly needed in the church today. Again, I quote Dr. Wearsby. Spiritual maturity is one of the greatest needs in the churches today. Too many churches are playpens for babies instead of workshops for adults. He says, after over a quarter century of ministry, I am convinced that spiritual immaturity is the number one problem in our churches today. God is looking for mature men and women to carry on His work. And sometimes all he can find are little children who can't even get along with one another. That is so true, and I can't agree more. So how is it possible for us to count these trials, these various trials, as joy? Number Verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Now let us understand this for a moment. Again, what is a trial? They are circumstances, often difficult ones, that the Lord allows in our lives to test us in the purifying sense of the word. They are used by God to better us. The word testing there is again a metallurgy term. It is something that is, it's a Greek word that is used for the refining process. As gold was discovered in various areas of the Roman Empire, that gold needed to be purified. The only way to do it is to heat it up. And as the gold heated up, the impurities, or what is known as the dross, is, was raised to the surface, could be scraped off by the metal worker, and what was left was pure gold. And that is what God is trying to produce in your life through the testings that he brings about. To show you your own heart. To reveal to you those areas that are in need of repentance. That you need to get right with him. That often as Christians we like to do what we do here on this earth. And that is when we clean the house we often shove everything into the closets, don't we? Okay, and I'm not the only one who does that, right? And I mean, you literally open the door and just wonder what the experience is going to be. God doesn't want to leave those things in the closet. He wants to deal with them. He wants you to work through them. So they don't come back to bite you in the rear end. That they become non-issues rather than issues that you deal with them up front and therefore don't have to deal with them later. But allowing these trials to be considered joy, we must have the right perspective. 
This perspective is best illustrated through a book of the Old Testament, the book of Job. The book of Job is truly a book of perspectives. There is God's perspective upon Job. There is Satan's perspective upon Job. There is the friends of Job's perspective upon Job. And then there's his own perspective. And I'll say this, that only one is right. And that is God's. We often move into an area of uncertainty when we get our eyes off of our situation and onto ourselves, or we begin to summarize the circumstances that we face in and through our own understanding, and in in most cases, both are incorrect. I love reading the incredible wise advice of Job's friends during his difficulties and trials here on this earth. Job knew in his heart that he had done nothing wrong to warrant such a consequence, such a severe trial or cursing of God. But his friends were convinced that he had. His wife was convinced that he had. Job didn't waver, but he began to question, oh, I wish I wouldn't have even been born. And yet we discover that in and through it all, the only one who saw the circumstances properly was God himself. So therefore, I must see my circumstances and me weathering them and walking through them as God sees them. That's the beginning of allowing myself to discover joy in those moments. I need to see things as God sees things. And therefore, I can rightly evaluate. And allowing that perspective then to, of course, govern my outlook. As one person said, he said, outlook determines outcome and an attitude to determines action. We must have the right outlook. And the only way to find that outlook properly is to discover God's perspective upon our circumstances. But what is this joy? As one wrote, he said, joy is a deep sense of well-being that may at the same time embrace sorrow, tears, laughter, anger, and pain. Joy is more of a decision than a feeling. It is choosing to live above the feelings, but not to deny them. It It is not an intense happiness, although choosing joy sometimes produces happiness, Joy is a particular Christian response to life since it depends on faith in God's sovereignty. It is quiet and grateful, and it inwardly delights in the goodness of God. Joy can be understood in the context of the two other main responses in life. Meaning, we have a choice to make, and that choice is how shall I respond to the tribulation that I'm facing. Well, another wrote, he said, trials can be faced with joy because infused with faith, perseverance results, and if perseverance goes full term, it will develop a thorough, mature Christian who lacks nothing. He will indeed be all that God wants him to be. However, though, notice that this patience is something in and of itself that must be acknowledged. This patience here is a perfect work. 
It's an endurance. This patience allows us to weather storms that we otherwise wouldn't weather. This patience that comes through this testing is a steadfast endurance or perseverance. As one wrote, he said, in the Bible, patience is not a passive acceptance of circumstances. It is a courageous perseverance in the face of suffering and difficulty. Many equate patience with simply waiting. However, it is patience in accomplishing a large task. The task for us is growing into spiritual maturity. Job had this idea. When he, stated, when he stated in Job 23.10, But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 4.17 and 18, For our light afflictions, which are but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look for the things which are seen, But the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, it is interesting to me, and my wife actually brought this to my attention years ago, that Peter says something very interesting about trials within our life. God doesn't bring trials into our lives unnecessarily. In fact, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, He says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. In that verse, that section in commas, if need be, is so important. God determines when we need trials in our lives. The master is at work within our lives. The master sculpturist is changing us and conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. And these trials, when they are brought about, they produce the genuineness of our faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, we can see these trials as an instrument of joy in our life when we value them appropriately. One wrote, he said, our values determine our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the material and the physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, then trials will make us bitter and not better. So, it produces this patience. And this patience leads itself, as we allow it to have its perfect or complete work in us, that you may be perfect. The word perfect there is complete, but in the Greek it also contains an element of maturity meaning it's mature to where it needs to mature to. It, it, we've matured to where we need to mature to, and this is brought about by trials. Parents, I know that as a parent, we want to keep our children from any harm, any difficulty, any 
adversity, if at all possible. But in our desire to do so, we often go to an extreme of sheltering them to the point where they never have to weather through the storms of life and therefore never come to a place of maturity in their life. Maturity is necessary. It's necessary physically, mentally, and spiritually. Part of maturing is working through the difficulties of life. Iron sharpening iron. Allowing those difficulties to produce in us the character that they need to produce. For example, I was reading of a story of a parent who continuously picked up the pieces after their child had made serious mistakes and was wondering why the child never learned from those mistakes. It's because they never had to work through the consequences of them. I think that as parents, of course, we need to always assist our children. But we also need to allow them to make decisions and work through the consequences or benefits of those decisions. As God, too, will allow us to go through trials and difficulties for maturity, I think it is also necessary that we allow our children at times to work through the difficulties of this life to help prepare them to become an adult in this life. Just my two cents. Verse 5. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it may be given to him. One of the vulnerabilities that we enter into when we come and find ourselves in the midst of a trial, again, it is illustrated through the uh, second E explanation. Why am I going through this? Why am I experiencing this? But God says that he will give to any who ask of him the wisdom that is needed. As one wrote, he said, someone has said that knowledge is the ability to take things apart while wisdom is the ability to put them together. Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. So basically, this wisdom is asking God to help us to respond to the trial in the manner that he would have us respond to it, that we may be a light unto the world. One of the greatest opportunities to be an evangelist for Jesus Christ is to allow the world to see you reflect Christ in times of difficulty. That same writer went on to say, why do we need wisdom when we are going through trials? Why not ask for strength or grace or even deliverance for this reason? We need wisdom so we will not waste the opportunities God is giving us to mature. Wisdom helps us to understand how to use these circumstances for our good and for God's glory. God is completely willing to give you the wisdom needed. And today the Bible gives us that wisdom, shows us that wisdom through the illustrations of the individuals that are found within it. God will not cr criticize you for asking for this wisdom so it says he will not reproach you for doing so. God will not give to one who is double-minded. Notice what he says here in verse 6. 
He says here, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not any man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Now, what does that mean? What does a double-minded man mean or woman? It means this, that they don't know if they believe what is true. That they are wavering at the promises of God. They're waving, uh, wavering under the understanding of who God is and His purpose for trials within the life of the believer. That they are not confident that God is doing exactly what He says He is going to do. So the prerequisites for this wisdom are found as such. Number one, we must ask in faith. Trusting God. That trust is built upon the knowledge of God and of His Word. God has revealed Himself through His Word and through the person of Jesus Christ to His creation. It is imperative that you and I understand the character of God. Therefore, that substantiates the promises of God and the ability of God to fulfill the promises that He has made to us in our times of trial. Number two, we must not doubt God's promises and what He is doing in our lives. If God says He's doing something, He's doing it. We can be confident of that. Because what doubt will do, it'll it'll cause us to be tossed to and fro by every circumstance that we experience in life. Of course, this is a true sign of immaturity, isn't it? Someone being tossed to and fro by every one of their circumstances that they experience in life be the young adult, the the teenager, or the adult, or the Christian. It doesn't matter. Immaturity will cause a fluctuation, a volatility in our life that God says to avoid. Paul said it this way, that my job as a pastor is to equip you to fulfill the work of the ministry. That is how God would have you serve him. But in the maturing process, he goes on to say, let them mature so they are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Meaning, just pushed like a sea, uh, a ship on a sea, aimlessly being tossed to and fro by the wind that blows over the sea. The only way that we are going to find security in an insecure world is in our trust in our God. As the famous commentator William MacDonald wrote, We must approach God in faith without doubting. We must believe He loves and cares and that nothing is impossible with Him. If we doubt His goodness and His power, we will have no stability in their times of trouble. One minute we might be resting calmly on His promises, but the next we will feel that God has forgotten to be kind. What is a double-minded man? One wrote it this way. One who is torn between what God has said and what one sees. This double-minded position will keep us in a constant state of insecurity and vulnerability. He then moves on to understand this from a practical perspective. The book of James is structured in a very interesting way. And I think I need to comment on this. There are many who try to find 
a common thought as if James had sat and wrote this letter all at one time. And so, of course, segueing from one idea to the next. I hold that James was compiled in the same manner that Proverbs was. Proverbs was compiled by King Solomon as a journal, that he wrote journal entries, and then they were compiled and put together and so forth. And it seems as you read a chapter, okay, well, here's this thought, oh, here's the next thought, here's the next one, here's the next one. I think James was compiled in the same way, and there's a lot of evidence, I think, to support that. But when it comes to verses 9 through 11, this is where we have to go back to understand the recipients of this letter. The recipients of this letter were Jewish Christians who were scattered abroad. The scattering of the 12 tribes, which he says there in verse 1. The Jewish individuals operated under a a covenant with God that they were incredibly familiar with. The old covenant, the covenant of Moses. And of course, that covenant was based upon being obedient and reaping blessings or being disobedient and reaping consequences, right? Deuteronomy 28 and 29. So, what was a national promise to the nation of Israel, by the time of Jesus, they had individualized uh, that promise to, to ascertain if someone was truly walking with God or someone who was not. Uh, Jesus rebuttals this by telling them, no, look for the fruit, the fruit of the individual life. Remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus inquiring of salvation. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And of course, you go through the dialogue with Jesus and him. And Jesus finally comes to the point and says, go and sell all that you have and come and follow after me. And you will have eternal life. And the rich young ruler went away sorrowful. Now, The next question of the disciples is key to understanding this this, uh, insight. They said, well, if he can't be saved, then who can be saved? Now, why did they ask that question? They asked that question because they had assumed that that rich young ruler's wealth had indicated that he had favor with God. Oh, wait a minute. He was a rich young ruler. He was a, probably of a uh, good pedigree. He was wealthy. You know, he had all of the blessings that Deuteronomy 28 and 29 would offer. He must be right with God, and yet you've turned him away. He walked away. Jesus didn't turn him away. He walked away. Well, how can anybody be saved? See, they thought, well, if this man, who obviously has favor with God, if he can't be saved, then who can Well, that mindset continued in the pilgrimages from Jerusalem and Israel into the known world. They carried that mindset with them. So what does James write next? Writes next. He's first talking about people going through trials and counting it all joy. But the initial assumption based upon seeing someone go through trials is that they would have offended God in some way and they are now suffering the consequences thereof. Does this make sense? So notice what he... No? Doesn't make sense? All right, let's just pray and go home. No. Notice what he says next in verse 9. So let the lowly brother, that is the one who is uh, under a weight of trial, glory in his what? Exaltation. 
God is working in that lowly brother to bring about the characteristics that he so desires that individual to have that will lead to his exaltation, right? What did Paul say? You know, again, I want to go back to that verse because I think it's so important. For our light afflictions, which for is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceedingly and eternal weight of glory. For we do not look at things which are seen, but things which are not seen. For things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This young guy, this guy going through trials and tribulations, it isn't an indication that God is displeased with him. It's an indication that God is working in him. That's what James is saying here. But then he goes on. But the rich, however, let him glory in his humiliation. I got it. Because as flowers of the field, he will pass away. Meaning that at any time, this individual could lose the wealth that they have. It isn't predicated on favorability from God, right? And if God decides to humiliate this person by bringing them down a notch, later we'll read that you know, God gives grace to the humble, but resists the pride, prideful. They're passing away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flowers falls, and its beauty appearance, beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Don't assume that this person over here that is under enormous trial is some way, some way in disfavor with God. And don't assume that the person who is rich is in favor with God. For the lowly one will be exalted and the one who is wealthy shall be humbled. That's what James is saying here. It's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? Seeing things as God sees them, which is so important for us as we go forward in this life. In conclusion... If we are going to turn trials into triumphs, we must obey four imperatives found in our text this morning. Number one, we must count them as all joy, knowing that these things bring about patience, which leads to endurance. Letting it have its, number three, letting it that have its perfect work within us. And knowing that we can ask God, number four, for wisdom at any time throughout the process. Or to put it another way, as one wrote, there are four essentials for victory in trials. A joyful attitude, an understanding mind, a surrendered will, and a heart that wants to believe. As Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, 12-13, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trials which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when he, his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceedingly, exceeding joy. Of course, and then there's Romans 8.28 that reminds us, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And even Jesus found this joy as he faced the cross. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'd like to leave you with this quote from Dr. Wearsby, if I may. It should be on the screen behind you. The trials of life are not all alike. They are like a variegated yarn that the weaver uses to make a beautiful rug. God arranges and mixes the colors and experiences of life. The final product is a beautiful thing for His glory. God is working in you to bring Him glory through you.